and welcome to the Miseducation of the SLP. My name is Ingrid and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm your other host, Ayelet. And we have returned for episode 10. 10 episodes. Wow. <laughs> I did not believe that we would have this endurance, girl, but we made it. We made it here. Some bumps along the way. <laughs> Well, I'm really, really pleased um, with the consistency of people really listening um, and the, the, the conversations I'm having outside of the show um, have really made me, you know, grow as a person through this time. It is not easy for Ayelet or myself right now when it comes to this career Definitely and not. It feels really like you're breaking up with a boyfriend or a husband. Um, I, you know, equate it the other day um, with my wonderful family member. <laughs> like, I'm getting a divorce. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's been really heartbreaking for me. Um and hard for me to move through this with a level of urgency for what is the next path, which I'm really digging into. I don't know if you guys have seen or noticed, you know, the involvement on some of the days with the miseducated SLP and me listening and having conversations. Um, I'm really digging in to figure out the niche um, because this career is so much bigger than we ever anticipated it to be, and we're making it even larger. Uh, and uh, I think there needs to be some direction with how this is going, because I feel like it's getting derailed, and that's why everybody is screaming at the top of their lungs about their frustrations. It's very much all over the place right now. Yeah, um, we we definitely are a jack of all trades, and and yeah, I, I, I feel the same way in it. I, I'm not getting a divorce I would say, but we're definitely on a break right now <laughs> uh, while life kind of does what it wants with me at, at the moment. Um, well, my, yeah. divorce, my divorce is with clinical practice, not the career. This career, I earned my master's degree. It is mine. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and I have the belief that, you know, even moving forward, I could still get a PhD. I could become the researcher in the room that's been missing. I don't know what my journey is going to be. I don't know if I'm going to be a business owner and hire, hire speech pathologists. You don't need to be licensed or certified to do that. You know, I could, there's all kinds of things that people can look at to vary the experience from practicing but my divorce is with practicing a thing I really love doing um, <clears throat> because this isn't an environment I think is going to allow me to do it with uh, the success that I'd like to do it in because it's not structured for it right now for me and my personality and what I want to do for it. I want to really move things forward and that's really difficult um, without restructuring how speech pathology is seen in the world. And I want that for us. I want every speech pathologist to be highly respected, which is challenging right now. Mm -hmm. And that's not what we're hearing from you guys out there that, you know, 
we're hearing a lot of people who are frustrated, who are not feeling valued, who are not feeling respected, um, who are feeling the stress of high productivity strand standards, low wages, and uh, lots of other, you know, concerns about what's going on in our field. And so you return to me and Ayelet as we tell our tales. <laughs> <laughs> So that you can have a place to go that sounds like you. And, but we are actively doing things to work and see what is the possibility. So I'm also going to be bringing you information from highly educated SLPs um, across the board. Um, and so I'm moving more so in line with that to see what we can do to actually create effective change instead of just living in this. Um, the reason I say that is because the next story I'm about to tell has to do with the academic turn SLP turn businesswoman. So I loved this story. It's actually going to be a two-part story because it was so chock full. Our first two-parter. Yay. <laughs> um, it was chock full of really interesting nuggets to talk about, not to mention I've been listening to new podcasts. And there's just some things that I'm like, you know what? I feel like this should be on the on the ears of the other speech pathologists out there. And hopefully, you know, we can start having these conversations a little bit more loudly. You know, you can go to work and you can tell people like you need to listen to this because it's starting to it's starting to bubble this idea that we can actually make effective change and be more substantiated in this in this realm. Um, so. I think her story is fantastic. I am fascinated by somebody who went through undergrad and, and said, yeah, no, I definitely want to be a PhD. Like, I'm not even going to play with being a clinician. I know my lane. It was an R1 institution. Have you ever heard of R1? No, I don't think I have. So an R1 institution is like one with huge faculty members that are PhDs with large labs and, you know, everybody's like really scientifically driven in these institutions. It's highly respected institution because of the fact that it's churning out all this research. So and the R stands for research? I'm assuming so. <laughs> I, I have no idea, but it's definitely the drive of the academic environment. So that was her wheelhouse. So she didn't even question it. And, you know, her desire to be a PhD was because she really was just a curious person. And being a scientist, you have the opportunity to kind of find a problem, pick it apart, look it over, see what you can do to learn about it or fix it, you know, just get in there. But that was the idealistic view of PhD life, you know, uh, for her particular experience, as she moved through academia, um, she started noticing its barriers, which people don't always discuss openly. What being there, especially on the tenure track or things like that, you know, where you had to kind of fall in line, built a relationship with being more focused as a revenue generator. So if we're going to give you these things, you need to provide us with this type of research. Hmm. You get, you lose, you lose your 
ability to be curious about the things you feel are relevant to study. Always stuck in that profit-driven model, no matter where you go, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Business prevails. Um, So it was a, you know, a disillusioned experience after a while. And um, in her personal life, there was a man. And that man was on the fast track and his, you know, his experience with the patriarchal world, go dude. (laughs) (laughs) And he was financially at a better stance to um, basically excel in his career than where she needed to go for the continuation of her PhD process. So... Mm -hmm. The way it was explained to me is that the PhD is completed, then you do what is considered a two-year post-op someplace else where you study and, you know, continue what you're doing. And then you move again to someplace else to acquire a faculty position. So all that movement didn't work in line with her husband, right? Right. So that wasn't possible. And I, I kind of thought that was really interesting that if it were the roles reversed and how likely is it that the roles reverse, that the woman would make the financial, like would be the financial powerhouse and the husband would have to adjust his career a little bit for him. It's not as frequent. Frequent. It's not at all frequent (laughs) (laughs) from my point of view. I've, I've, Oh, I've kind of seen it be more regularly that way, and at least in the SLP arenas, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's kind of like an asset to the marriage instead of the driving force for mm-hmm. it. Um, and it's usually the males that are more financially powerhoused and can and can take care of their wives. I think that makes a difference um, for people that are not necessarily like in the marriage space. So I don't know it, the factualness of like the hypo, you know, the statement that black women are like the lowest population of women to be married mm-hmm. in the United States still being correct, but it was for a time that way. And there's this aggressive look and this discussion about how we're perceived in society. I don't think that marriage in our arena was really easy to come by. Mm-hmm. And for me, definitely not. Um, you know, I there's plenty of times where I was told I was intimidating. And I just walked in the room being myself. <laughs> <laughs> I had flaws. I was a bit judgmental. I'm a know-it-all. I speak with authority in spaces where it probably doesn't call for it. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely comfortably make mistakes. Anyone can call me out on them. I'm happy to receive them. I, I'm appreciative of them, actually. It makes me feel like, okay, cool. We can, you, you know, I don't have to be perfect because I'm not. And, and I don't expect to be. And that should be okay, too, if I make a mistake or if I say something out of touch. But I was told I was intimidating. So I didn't get that feeling from you, though, Ayala, when we met. I felt like you could keep up. Uh, well, I mean, you always had my back um, 100%. You were always like, you know, making sure that people knew how to say my name correctly. <laughs> um, you, you, were, you were like a cheerleader right from the beginning. But 
I don't think I was intimidated by you. Um, I, I, I'm trying to think back to like when we first met, I can't really put my finger on like the first time that that happened, but you know, for those of you out there listening who don't, who may not know Ingrid in person, um, aside from all of her confidence and her speaking, um, how she does, Ingrid is probably one of the most talented flirts I've ever met. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it's really like watching a master at work. So I, I mean, I can understand if men are intimidated by you. <laughs> oh my God. Oh. <laughs> it is like, it's literally like a second language that lives on my skin and I don't know what to do about it. I'm just <laughs> Like Usher made that song seductive for me. Like that's it. That it, it is. It is very, very true. <laughs> it I, just oozes out of your pores, like. But it's it's just completely you and completely natural and not a put on at all. <laughs> no. Yeah. I. You know. I learned about that though. I used that as a tool. I realized that flirting and being a little witty and being, you know, fairly well-groomed and attractive. It was a tool to get men's attention because I don't know if you were aware, I had not even had like a real lengthy boyfriend. I had like three months here of like dating, you know, a couple times a week or whatever, but I was awkward with dating because I was coming out of such a strict household that at 24, when I finally got my master's degree, I still had a 1 p.m. or 1 a.m. curfew. I mean, my life was not built for me to get involved with somebody, partner someone. I mean, to be very transparent, I didn't even have sexual engagements with anybody until I was 25. Like, I was not the person that was going to get in there, but I used flirtation to get attention. <laughs> <laughs> and you were and very good at it. Boy, did I. So when I focus on something that I want to learn, <laughs> I, I excel, I excel. I work really hard to get it. But um, I've hoped at, with age, I mean, I'm, I still have a little play with that, but I've hoped that I've kind of, you know, downplayed that because that's a, that was an outpouring of insecurity and all that. It wasn't really appropriate. But anyway, with her experience with her husband, I, it kind of made me wonder if my journey in this would have been different if I had had to follow a husband or if I had somebody that was there for me. And it's those types of what ifs that I sit on for a second and then I go, you know what? It doesn't really matter. That's not the reality of my life. My life is what it is now. And I'm going to enjoy and make the best of what I have in front of me instead of sitting in that what if. Um, but it was something that crossed my mind. Well, and you did a lot of traveling and that would have been really difficult, you know, if you had, you know, someone else to consider when taking those travel jobs and things like that. And I, I actually knew a couple of married couples that traveled together back when I used to do contract work. But, you know, I did contract work, 
but never traveled because I was in a serious relationship. I was living with someone, then I was married. And, you know, obviously now I have two kids that I can't just pick up and move around. Um, but yeah, it is harder to, you know, pick those like choice travel assignments and, and go wherever the, you know, the wind takes you when you do have, you know, roots when you are tied down. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it probably wouldn't have been my life. My life Mm -hmm. would have looked very different. You know, it would would have looked more similar to some of the other people that did have partnerships. So um, I don't even know if there's a comparative component of stress to it because I'm out here, I have no one I can lean on. So I'm going to go out for the biggest piece of paycheck that I can versus, you know, spouse, although you might have the help of your spouse, there's responsibilities there. And if you develop a family, there's that. And so although I'm dangling in the breeze as a single person, I stress about things because I'm by myself. I don't know if it's alleviated with a spouse or if it's magnified or I can't compare it. And it's not for me to compare because both of those journeys are different from each other. But I do recognize both have those elements. And so I don't romanticize the fact that, you know, the academic SLP businesswoman decided, okay, I have to pivot for my husband. Like it was the best thing since sliced bread and it was all roses. You know, sometimes there are some components to that that would bring a little bit of frustration. But again, this is all conjecture. It's nothing that we, she and I even discussed during our interview, but it, as I was doing the blog portion and typing everything out, it really kind of made me think. So her husband kind of kept her from doing the traditional PhD route of the two-year post-op and then getting a faculty position. So that is when academia kind of took a backseat where she occasionally, you know, retained some dabbling of adjunct positions and so on and so forth. But she really focused her energy on going into the school system. Ayala, could you imagine a PhD <laughs> in the school system? Oh. I mean, I couldn't even imagine myself in the school system, but I did it and I was there. But I meant the culture, the idea yes. of someone with a PhD going into the school system. And and they are out there for sure. Um, mm-hmm. But the culture of it is, in terms of her experience, there's a different point of view. And I, I would really wonder how how different your IEP meetings are with parents and other professionals when you have that PhD behind your name, if that warrants a little bit of more respect than, you know, some of us typically see in those IEP meetings. You would assume that, but that is not necessarily something we even discussed because I didn't even think about that cultural subset view of if parents would look at her. She dropped being called doctor because of the cultural perception of PhD mm. in the school environment, in the clinical practice, practicing world. When you are a clinical SLP and you're met with an academic, I don't know that it's always a wonderful embracing relationship. I do think it's a, you don't know what we do anyway. <laughs> you're putting out all this research. It has nothing to do with how I clinically practice because I have 90% productivity. Who has time to give a five hour evaluation? Mm-hmm. You know, you're putting out all this great research data, all this stuff, but can I really do that in real practice? This gap or this distance has made it to where practicing clinicians and PhDs 
there's this kind of quiet culture from what her personal experience was. And Fred, what I've also gleaned, because I'm one of these people that kind of, I'm a little bit more like, I don't think anybody's above me in my natural presentation mm-hmm. in the world. So I can talk to a president just as equally as I could talk to a homeless person and I don't feel anything. But I do understand that culture that you might be like, oh, well, who is this person coming in with the PhD? And she was experiencing that from not only teachers, but all fellow SLPs. I think, I don't think, I, th- well, I think that that, you know, that happened this year, not too long ago to, to Dr. Jill Biden, where people were, there was a backlash about using the term doctor to define her, where, you know, some people seem to think that that doctor of academia is pretentious, but wouldn't think that if you were talking about an MD, you know? Mm-hmm. Or even... If it were a man, would it have been approached differently? (laughs) And, you know, that was a big question for me because she really genuinely went in there, you know, and she recognized as a person who wants to do a good job in the field, her own incompetency. Because, I mean, in the PhD arena, from, again, this is all me relaying her story, but from the PhD arena, your focus in your area of expertise, you can kind of stay on top of it and you know what you're really covering. So you can stay abreast of all the information. Being a school-based SLP, you have to know everything because you don't know what diagnosis you're going to get sitting in front of you. Mm-hmm. She had children with CP to autism. She had apraxia of speech to stuttering. She had language. I mean, you get thrown the kitchen sink of our discipline. Yes, you do. And not, and not only do you get thrown the kitchen sink of our discipline, they give it to you all at the same time, too. Here, see all five of these kids in the same session. They all have something different going on. <clears throat> that model itself is awful. And it's where the science gaps with the practice and how can we facilitate a more a system that would make that not the case anymore. But that's a digression. However... You know, her going in, recognizing her incompetency and being like, okay, she also knew she couldn't learn it all in a quick manner because this isn't this isn't a fast learning type of thing. It takes us two years to get foundation, but it takes us much more education after that to get expertise. And we are missing the mark in that understanding that so. The predisposition or the pre-culture component of the fact she's going from an academic environment to a school-based environment put her in a situation where she academics, PhDs, you're celebrated. Woo, you're awesome. You have a lot of respect, all this stuff. In the school system, I can't even show this because people are just going to assume I'm coming in like I'm a know-it-all. Right. They're just going to assume that I know everything. So she had to put her foot front and center, present herself like, hey, guys, nope, I don't know anything that any other SLP that's in their first to five years of practicing in a school system knows. I'm literally brand new to this type of practice. And we should all be so welcoming of that idea. Like, I really don't know this arena. 
I'm willing to practice here, but I'm also willing to learn. So she Mm -hmm. took that time and she learned. You know what's really difficult when self-teaching? The breadth of resources that are available to speech-language pathologists. Oh, my. Have you seen how vast and wide? There is... Mm -hmm. There is so much training out there. There's so many things to learn. There's so many different options. It it does really become overwhelming. And especially when you don't work with a specific target population where you can kind of hone your skills for that specific subset, it really is difficult to know where to start because it's like, oh, well, you know, I don't know a lot about stuttering. Do I work, 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 work real hard to learn everything I can about stuttering for the one student that I have? Or do I work, 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 work real hard to learn everything about apraxia for the one student that I have? Mm -hmm. Or do I get that general knowledge of a little bit of everything so that I can, you know, be competent with everyone, but not an expert? Mm -hmm. You know, it, it is. There's a lot of knowledge out there. We have a lot of things in our scope that don't necessarily, you know, go together like easily, you know, not things that you can learn all together at the same time. That Um, and, and the information, you aren't always clear on if it's from a reliable place in school. That's why there's so much focus on academic, the university should have prepared us for all of this because it's trusted learning. Mm -hmm. We're on our own for the rest of our career trying to figure out what should be trusted learning. And I think this year has really shown us that a lot of our colleagues don't know how to necessarily gauge good information from disinformation. Correct. And so that becomes something that's recognized by this academic turned SLP because she's in the process of learning so that she can do what she can for her population. And so this is something that changes her in how she does things because she registers, I'm not going to be the expert right now. I'm just going to be in this room with you. And I'm hoping that what I'm doing is going to make a difference. And you become an actual in-present scientist with nothing to support your practice. And it's you become the thing that makes the communication progress. I like that. Where'd that come from? In-present scientist. Yeah. I don't know. My mind. <laughs> I like that that term you coined is really kind of perfect because you really do have to, it's a lot of trial and error and you yeah. are trying to figure out what works best with each patient, client, student, uh, what is the best way to, to help them. And you constantly have to be fluid and change and, and, and make changes as you go. So that it, that, I like that. (laughs) Yes. And critically think because I understand um, it becomes it it becomes one of those components where I was just like, if I'm the in present scientist because I can't learn what I need to learn and I'm doing everything that I know and I'm making it and it's actually working and I'm seeing it become something that's effective, I'm going to want to present that to other SLPs. And this is what I'm sharing that worked for me and what I'm doing. But this then becomes the muddling of data. (laughs) 
We've now just saturated the market with all this information that's just variant because we're all individuals. And that's why I was just like, you know what? The science of speech language pathology is as fluent as the client. And can we make that something that can be more understood um, as a, a respected a respected science? I, I'm, I'm thinking this because I'm looking at psychology because I feel like generations of people have changed. And psychology is the study of how people think. And so it has to be fluid and moving. And I wonder how they do their their data collection, um, I think more so in the yes-no component of things. And I wonder if SLPs can be more participatory in creating surveys of patient experiences and showing, you know, how they felt about this amount of time versus this amount of time. Because, you know, we have repeat customers in speech pathology uh, when your children are coming to us to when, you you know, we're seeing you towards the end of life across the scope. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm positing or thinking about what can be done that can accommodate for individualized care, which continues to expand us as a science. I mean, we just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, but also to rein it in to go, like, how are we going to make this valuable to support what we're asking for, that we are valuable? Mm-hmm. We're having a hard time communicating that in the richness of what our discipline is. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I totally agree, you know, and a lot of times, especially like in that school-based setting, you know, we really find a lot of like two times 30, we're going to see you two times 30 or three times 30 or four times 30. And, uh, you know, it, it does get a little bit cookie cutter and it is harder to kind of fit a different time frame into, you know, that everyday school schedule, but what is really most effective for that client and how do we know and how do we get insurance and schools and districts and, you know, whoever is making our, uh, productivity standards to really understand, like, this is how we know what is best for this client. This is how we know what's going to help them get better. Right. I've had to get really flexible based on the limitations of what my job offered me, right? So if I'm in home health and I can only see you one time a week, um, okay, well, What's the validity or what's the effectiveness of me giving you home exercises for oral motor and then me coming back the next week and how long am I going to need to really see you? And those variants is um, it it happens or when you see a student in the school and you're like, oh, my gosh, this kid could really benefit from five days a week because I think every child would benefit from five days a week. But I can only fit you in with two. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's really funny. And, you know, if I had stayed in my school position, I already had a plan in place um, for what I was going to do with my articulation kiddos, because I had an epiphany when we pivoted to distance learning at the end of the year. I wasn't able to see my kids in the large groups that they were in because we still weren't sure what to do in terms of privacy. So we were only seeing kids one-on-one at the end of the year. And one-on-one, I wasn't able to see all of the kids for all of their minutes because, you know, it just wasn't feasible because I have had so many kids on my caseload. And I was seeing, you know, 
most of my kids for 15 minutes, but I was seeing them individually. And I felt like a lot of my articulation kids and, you know, my language kids too, but really strongly I felt about my articulation kids that that one-on-one time working with them and having their parents with them to kind of follow through with homework and follow through with practice really made a huge difference. And I saw more progress in that last little bit of the school year with a lot of my articulation kids than I had seen with them the whole year. And I really was kind of gearing more towards focusing on that um, shorter individual more frequent sessions with my articulation kids. And that was my plan was to really start to see them for like five to 10 minutes, four times a week, just pull them out of the classroom, stand them in the hallway, drill, 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 send them back in, go to the next one. And really doing that more frequently, I just found that I was getting more practice, more drill. I was getting them to say that sound more often in that shorter spurt of time when it was just me and them than I was getting when I was seeing them for 30 minutes in a group of five where you play like a game of go fish and everybody says their word maybe 10 times or their sound. Right. And this kind of understanding of the value, the comparative work, like, okay, I've done this with these amount of students this way versus this, your case study as the scientist in the room is what you present to say, okay, this is why we need to do it this way. And that's what is the missing gap. We keep saying it. We're not showing any data to create it. And so we are all kind of responsible for moving in that manner. I think that's been the problem the whole time is that we haven't done best practice that is optimized in our research to show the value of it. I mean, even when you put five SLPs in a room and you have them watch a video fluoroscopy swallow study, all MBSIMP trained, you have variations in what they're viewing. It's such an individualized perspective, subjective feeling type of thing. It's why, you know, I'm looking at neurodiversity and I'm going, okay, That's a big thing that we're trying to ingest on top of, because we're trying to be compassionate communicators now, we're trying to be more sensitive to how people communicate on top of the swallowing scope of things. And I mean, we just keep growing. And so it's too big to make sense. You know, I've heard it recently. That's where a lot of my mindset has kind of evolved because, um, the podcast that I'd been listening to was by um, Meredith uh, Harold um, and um, Ianessa Humbert, I believe is her last name. Um, wonderful PhD academic individuals that are discussing how are we providing solutions now that we've heard these problems. Um, and so your example right there is what would need to be documented and then how can we make all of that collect together um, that's the undertaking of a of this profession uh, I don't know if only PhDs can be the only ones doing the science anymore I think just regular everyday practicing clinicians need to and work collaboratively with PhDs and see if there can be a partnership instead of this, like, well, you think you're better than me. You don't know what I'm doing. I think there might need to be more of an incorporation 
which would also reflect in how, you know, decisions are made with ASHA. I, I think that, you know, it's perfectly normal to consider historically, most of the time, academics usually ran big organizations, but in spaces like this, there could be an opportunity for a really well-deserved master's degree clinician that just knows the craft and that's all that's all and can run the organization in the direction it needs to go um, and have a very influential movement there. So it's a lot. It's a lot of discussion. Um, As I kept digging in to her story, um, she got to the point where by year five, is when she started feeling like, okay, I can handle it. It took her about five years to hit the major areas that were her on her caseload. So I'm, I wonder if she'd had more diverse population, if that would have taken her longer. Even longer. <clears throat> yeah. Cause in Florida, God knows we have so many different cultures and backgrounds. I mean, you could be lost in clinical curiosity for a lifetime um, <clears throat> but for her, it took her that amount of time to get to that place. And, you know, by then she was getting an opportunity to go back to the academic arena. Um, but that takes a little time. So there was a lull in there. There was like a nine month lull. And that's when she created her business unbeknownst to her. She was just, she was putting things in place that she didn't realize were going to have a huge impact um, on the field moving forward. And, um, that's when things really started to shift in her life. And that's when she learned another component about this career in a new way, because becoming a business owner shapes and changes everything. Yeah. It's funny that you talked about that five year mark. Um, It makes me think of a discussion that I had with Ashanti not too long ago. Um, And we were discussing how I remember in grad school that our supervisors would would kind of I I heard it a few times, like people would say like it was that three year thing where, you know, you got out of school and you would start practicing and you kind of feel like you were fumbling around in the dark and didn't really know what you were doing. And then Mm -hmm. like at three years, it would kind of like click. And then you would really feel like you were, you know, on top of it and you really knew what you were doing. And me and Ashanti both just kind of looked at each other and were like, I'm still waiting for that click to come, you know, because it, it just, it feels like things are just ever changing and, and you're always trying to be abreast of what's new and what, you know, what new science is coming out, what new um, theories are coming out, what new practice is coming out. And, you know, now as we're starting to listen to, our neurodiverse communities. We're starting to listening to our stuttering communities um, <clears throat> and really learning like what we've done in the past that might have been harmful to them and how do we adjust and adapt and change to that. So we are, you know, as you said earlier, we are a really young field and we are still learning and growing and changing and Um, it is hard and it can be overwhelming. And that can also lead to some of the frustration that some of us are feeling where, you know, we're constantly having to learn, grow, change, adapt, and maybe the people around us and the people above us aren't really moving in that direction with us and not appreciating how much we need to do it as well and not getting the respect for that 
aspect of it. Yeah. I think there's a level of gap. Um, and I think the clinicians are relatively flexible because nothing is ideal on the clinical floor. If you're a good critical thinker, you'll do great in it because you'll, you'll be the person that's going to be effective no matter the conditions of the work environment, um, the expectations regarding the pay. You'll, you'll navigate your way because you're critically thinking about the situation in front of you and the patient in front of you. So I became very proficient at providing really high quality care because I really focused on, okay, this is my limitation. This is what I can do. This is the science. This is what I can incorporate. And this is where we need to go. And I used all of that in one single moment when I'm looking at this patient, like, how effective is this going to be for you? You are drooling and not coherent. And like, (laughs) how do I make my time the most effective in this moment? So, um, you know, we, we kind of, we've kind of all made decisions to adjust so that we can fit in and make it work. And if we become really good at self data collecting and, you know, figuring out ways to do surveys or whatever, if we can put more science in it and have it be respected for the fact that it's from the actual working class instead of from what has always been traditionally only these type of people can operate in that. I am not strong at research at all. And I don't want to muddy the the expectation at by any stretch, but just what's a digestible way for practicing clinicians to participate, to participate in data collection in a more flexible manner, because we are making it patient centered. We are choosing to sit inside the circumstances of what we're in and making adjustments. I can't do evidence-based practice on a Haitian patient. There is no science behind that. So I have to get creative. Is that part of something that I could utilize to be for data collecting and submit it and have it, you know, be interpreted or whatever? It's that kind of stuff that I'm trying to figure out what are these solutions that we can come up with and can we start talking about it? Yeah, how do we get the research out to the masses? Or how do we get the masses involved in the research? Yeah. So um, the next part will be the academic SLP turned business, business owner. Woman. Mm-hmm. Yes. So she is going to be talking about that section. And, or I am, I'm going to be talking about that section on her behalf. And basically indicating like, you know, these are literally the broad strokes of our career. You can become a PhD, you can be a practicing clinician, and you can be a business owner. Like she hit on the the trifecta and there's still more. (laughs) (laughs) So much more. Yeah. So I think knowing that really makes for me as a professional to consider um, there's possibility over the horizon and I just need to recognize my purpose in this right now is what can I do to help improve what has made it so hard for a good, well, a good hearted person to fail so miserably, you know, how can I solve that? Cause I, I, I really didn't want to, you know what I mean? <laughs> Nobody wants to. So Anyway, um, thank you guys for coming back, listening to episode 10. And I look forward to you guys returning for the second part. Um, Didn't want it to go too long. So um, 
Well, make sure if you're listening and you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating, rate us and review us wherever you're listening. Um, Please subscribe, like, share with people that you know. Uh, Wear your new hat of in-person scientists proudly out there. And we will see you next time. All righty. Bye. Bye.